do continue on in our study of Genesis, and in particular, our study of chapter 19 in Genesis. And so I will pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 12. And I'll go through the end of the chapter. It is a, a meaty chunk, so uh, hunker down on in with me, perhaps even read along as we read Genesis 19, 12 through 38 now. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place, the men there being the angelic visitors. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife, and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salts. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him and that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. 
He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son, and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The word of the Lord. Lord and our God, we confess that um, all of your word is profitable and useful for instruction and training in righteousness. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that inspired this word. We would be trained in the way we would be trained by this word today. We humble ourselves beneath it. We receive the great warning that it is, and we rejoice in the great mercy at the center of it all. That is ours in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen and amen. In Romans 6, 23, the Apostle Paul writes a truth that is as simple as it is profound, and it is the central truth behind all reality, and it is the culmination of our text today. Namely, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, The wages of sin, what sin earns you, barring divine intervention, is death and destruction. But what Christ has earned for us by merciful divine intervention is life and life eternal. And again, we continue on in this hard, heavy, sobering, perhaps confusing and complex 19th chapter of Genesis. But the neon sign that hovers above it all is the truth behind Romans 6.23. The wages of sin really is death. But God, being merciful, really does offer life to any and every sinner. However, we also see a third category emerge as well. Namely, the deadly cost of compromise for someone who was saved also. So time would forbid us to go line by line through this text today, which is our typical custom, but we're going to use these three categories to to guide our understanding of, of the text. Namely, the judgment on Sodom, the lesson from Lot, and the mercy of God. First, the judgment on Sodom and the surrounding valleys, including the shrubbery. There's much going on here, much that could be commented on, but again, the neon sign over the text is the iron inevitability of divine judgment on sinners who persist in their sin and refuse to repent. This is what is so striking about this text, and we saw last week just how thoroughly eaten up with corruption Sodom had become. It was showcased most clearly in the ravenous homosexual appetites of the men of the city, but 
Again, this is not something that, that happened overnight. This was a slow burn of God denying rebellion over years that has culminated today. So after much patience and forbearance, God d- does bring swift and decisive and thorough judgment upon these sinners and their sin as hell falls upon them, as it were, from the heavens in the form of sulfur and fire. In fact, this shout, as it were, of divine judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah actually echoes throughout the rest of human history as Sodom and Gomorrah really become the archetype of divine judgment upon sinners. The the prophet Isaiah in chapter 13 warns Babylon that because of her relentless evil, she will become like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And we see it referenced throughout the Old Testament and Deuteronomy and other places. But we also see in the New Testament that what we see today stands as the warning and the archetype of God's judgment on human sin. Jude verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude ups the ante on what this is a picture of. It's not just earthly judgment, but this is eternal judgment that we see. And again, this hits very close for us to home in our current culture, as as we've seen the sins of Sodom hailed as virtues in our time. And you'll often hear Christians say, who see that and are rightly distressed by that, that America better be very careful or we will fall into the judgment of God if we don't stop. But something that I think is very important for us to understand is that we are not presently a nation awaiting judgment. We are presently a nation that is under the judgment of God. Because God has both active judgment and passive judgment. So when a nation's leaders have lost all moral courage and celebrate Sodom, That is the judgment of God on a nation. When the medical sterilization of children is called gender-affirming care, that is the judgment of God upon a nation. And of course, we could point to many other things that show that we are under judgment. And I'm saying this is important for us to understand categorically because for two reasons. One, we don't want to find ourselves compromising into that judgment, which we'll look at in just a moment. But secondly, we need to understand this because one spot response is is very different to the warning, your electricity is shot and you could have a house fire soon, as compared to looking outside and seeing flames already coming through the roof. So your response to to those two things are very different. And there's already flames coming out of our national roof. The, The house that our grandchildren will inherit is presently on fire, which means the church must have an urgency to plead with the Lord to relent of the judgment that is upon us, 
to plead with the Lord to cause revival in the land that will come through the proclamation of the gospel within the people of the church, whether individuals that we know or through larger platforms that the Lord has given to some of us. Because judgment is real, both the national judgment that we are under and the eternal judgment that awaits all who reject Jesus Christ. So the lesson from Sodom, if nothing else, according to the rest of the scriptures, should rekindle great urgency in us for the task of prayer and evangelism. Now to be sure, we know that Christ is going to win. We know that the land we call America will one day be redeemed, or redeemed and the church's future is bright, but we must also soberly understand what time it is and the times that we live in. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least make them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. This is one of the reasons we started the, the 630 a.m. prayer meeting so that we can be more intentional and more specific as the men of our church to pray for revival and to pray for salvation to come upon our land. So that is a clear reason the Holy Spirit gave us the 19th chapter of Genesis. But we must do more than pray that God would relent and bring revival. We must also, as Christians, guard our own souls and those within our households from the corrupting effects of Sodom in our land. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 8, says this to the church, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead... Expose them. And this brings us to our second point from the text. Namely, the lesson. The lesson that we must learn from Lot. So Lot is a sobering reminder to us as Christians and especially to us as fathers. This is going to be geared more to fathers. That, that just because compromise can be forgiven, it does not mean that compromise will be consequence free. See, we know that Lot was ultimately saved. Second Peter, he says that Lot was righteous. Lot was, was saved. Lot is in heaven right yet now, and yet he was a compromised Christian, as it were. He was not a man that was defined by faith like Abraham, at least from the account we are given that Moses chose to include in the text. He, he had personal salvation, but he didn't have a convictional spine, and he didn't have the wisdom to understand the threat that Sodom was to his beloved family, and so he didn't guard his people like he should have, and it ended up costing him and them dearly. For instance, he never should have moved his family to Sodom. That's like buying a condo and moving to the Vegas Strip because you hear that the job market is really booming there right now. Yes, you might land a decent job, but you have just endangered the souls of your people. But Lot readily allowed his family to live 
within a culture that was so corrupt, he was terrified for guests when they came to visit him. And last week, we see his failure even more obvious when, in order to protect the guests, he literally offers his daughters up to the sodomites to do whatever you see fitting to them. So don't do that. And then this week, we see in, in, in verses 15 and 16, another moment where, where, where he wavers. He wavers, and it cost his, his family. Verses 15 and 16, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you all be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered in that moment. He lingered. When they're pleading with him to protect your family from this. And so the angels themselves have to seize Lot by the hand and physically get them out of the bullseye of judgment that was coming. So you, you just want to shake this guy. And, and, and that lingering, I believe, speaks volumes about the man. What we see is because he didn't protect his family and because his personal life was not dominated by quick obedience to the word of God, his wavering faith flowed downstream into the rest of the family, and they wavered. A few examples from the text where we see this. So he pleads with his sons-in-law to get out because of the judgment, and they think he's joking. They think he's joking. He's lost all prophetic authority to speak into the lives of of his sons-in-law, and they are lost. And then there's his wife, who was instructed, do not look back. And she looked back longingly towards Sodom and became a pillar of salt, and he lost his wife. And three, finally, we have the very disturbing incident with his daughters in the cave. This is part of the reason why you do expository preaching, because this isn't one you typically gravitate to. But we want the entire word of God to inform us. They, they concoct this plan in order to get children, since all the men are gone. I won't get into the details again. I think you understand what's happening here twice. But let's just say it's not a good look for Lot's leadership. But why did they do this? This is even more important. Despite just the ugh of all of that, why did they do it? It was desperation driven by unbelief. That's why they did it. They thought, there's no way that the Lord would lawfully or not and disgustingly provide children for us. So this is the only thing we, we, we can do. We have to take matters into our own hand because they didn't trust the Lord. Lot had not instilled a deep trust in the Lord and his people. And no wonder... These are the two daughters that he had served up to Sodom previously. And then the end of chapter 19 is the end of Moses' account of Lot. And it is an ignoble ending, and yet we know that Lot was saved. So, the Spirit would have us see that just because compromise can be forgiven like Lot's was, it doesn't mean... It will be consequence-free. His compromise with Sodom was costly, and it came with a generational price tag. 
And so we read this whole account and, and we rightly shudder that he would put them in such peril. How could he have not had the wisdom and the courage and the forethought to protect his people from these things? But saints, we must recognize that this in large measure is exactly what much of the church in America has been doing over much of the last century. We've subcontracted out much of the education of our children to Sodom. We've subcontracted out much of our entertainment to Sodom. And we are now reaping the sorrowful fruit of that. And this is why the reformation that the Lord is doing in the church in our time begins with Christians saying to Sodom, not with our kids you don't anymore. We're not renewing that contract anymore. Rather, we will be a peculiar people who submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything, those weirdos who believe the Bible all the way down, in every single sphere of our existence, and we will by faith see that they are educated in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will, by faith, not be passive consumers of any rank dish Sodom happens to serve up on any given channel or theater or Spotify list. But we will feed them with stories and songs that actually have substance and extol virtue and warn against vice. We will, by faith, fill our worlds with things that point to the good and the true and the beautiful. Now, this doesn't mean we will only consume Christian content, as it were. In fact, part of the shame of the modern church is how cheesy our entertainment is. And part of the church's reformation is recovering herself as the center of artistic excellence, like the church always was for all of human history until five minutes ago. But anyways, no, we don't only consume Christian content. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean whatever we choose to put into our souls, whatever we choose to, to stir into the water of our children's souls, we will do so as Christians, on purpose, thoughtfully, discerningly, wisely. We will let Christ be the standard, not Sodom. And one pro tip here. You can tell that you are beginning to let Sodom set the standard for your media consumption, when you start praising something because you say, well, at least it's not as bad as fill in the blank, which we've all done, but it's, it's not a good standard for consumption. So kids, you order a sundae, they bring it out, you're about to bite into it, then the waiter catches you and says, thank goodness you did not eat that yet. The, I don't know what happened, but the chef, those actually aren't peanut butter butter cup things that they're actually squirrel droppings and I don't know how this happened but I'm so thankful you didn't take a bite yet and then you respond well, at least it's not as bad as that and you start to eat it that's a stupid way to judge whether something is good or not at least it's not as bad as that that's a silly reason to choose to eat something and it's a silly reason to feed your soul something as well. We don't want to be consuming something that will just, it will just harm me less, or it will just disgust us less, or it will just compromise a little less, because the crazier things get, soon you'll be way over here, because Sodom's here, 
and you're saying, well, at least it's not as bad as that, but you are a thousand miles <laughs> from the good, the true, and the beautiful. No, we're Christians. And so the question is not, is it less bad? The question should always be, is it good? And is it true? And is there something beautiful about it? Would God think there's something beautiful here? So let us learn from Lot. Again, especially fathers here. Let us not subcontract out our soul formation or the soul formation of our children to Sodom. Rather, let us continue striving to create our culture in accordance with the word of God and the wisdom of God and the law of God for the glory of God, all by the mercy of God. And this brings us to the final crucial thing for us to see in our text in conclusion, which, which we desperately at this point after two weeks feel the need of. Given the weightiness of judgment we, we see on Sodom and, and the sober lesson that Lot is Amidst all of this, this episode also reveals the incredible mercy of God. In the midst of this, we see this in verse 16. So Lot lingers. Then the text says, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and they set him outside of the city. So yes, the Lord is righteous and will by no means clear the guilty. And yes, this is not his heart's desire. The Lord is patient and gracious to any who would humble themselves in repentance. The Lord is willing at any moment to save those who are ensnared in sin. He will forgive all who call upon the name of Christ. And he demonstrated his love for us in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. In sending the Lord Jesus Christ to take on all the divine punishment that we deserved. Yes, this picture of judgment today is terrible and real, but it is nothing compared to what our Lord Jesus Christ endured on the cross. When he absorbed the full wrath that we deserve for all of our sins. And he did that because he loved the world. And he did it because, Second Peter again, he is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's impulse is mercy, not judgment. God's desire is redemption, not destruction. And this is the message we preach to ourselves as we continue as Christians to fight the good fight of faith and our holiness and, and sanctification. And this is the message that we preach to unbelievers who are currently under the judgment of God. And in conclusion, one final thing we need to see that almost hides in plain sight in the text. And it's the presence of Abraham in the story. Did you notice that? Did you notice that Abraham shows up on the scene again? And this is really significant. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked up, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Now listen to how the Holy Spirit recaps this. Chapters 18 and 19. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham, 
and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which he had lived. So as the Holy Spirit writes the recap on the last two chapters, the one thing he puts a highlighter on here for believers to take away is that God remembered Abraham because of the prayers that he prayed for Lot. And the point is clear. And this is what I want you to take away, if nothing else. One faith-filled Christian can have more of a redemptive, eternity-changing impact on an individual and a city than you could possibly imagine. One believing church that when they pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and really believe that God intends to do that, and then live the next six days of their life on purpose, bringing that about, well, that's how reformation and revival will come. And that's why it's actually such an exciting time to be a Christian. Because yes, the days are strange, and yes, the days are evil, but God in his providence chose you and me and us to be the church in this time in human history on purpose, to be the means by which he brings about revival and reformation in the land. So let us, like Abraham, pray believing prayers on behalf of the sinners in our city, on behalf of all the churches in our city, and on behalf of each other at Pilgrim Hill. Let's pray. So, Father, we, we come. Amen.